0: Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell from Bigelow, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. For over 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of seasoned, successful private business owners and working closely with hundreds of them. In this podcast, I interview some of the most high-performing, successful entrepreneur owner-managers from both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors so that we can all learn from their experiences. Today, my guest is Dr. Bill Cap. Bill is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon and, among other things, is a serial entrepreneur who started a number of interesting for-profit and not-for-profit enterprises, including the very well-known and 10-unit uh, landmark hospital chain. Bill is currently the CEO of Fountain Life. Fountain Life is a new company which has been formed to focus on the areas of health span and lifespan, and includes a number of very interesting business segments, which I know all of us would want to hear about. Bill, in my conversation, speaks to some of the startup of Fountain Life, but perhaps more importantly, some of Bill's background as to why he wanted to start up Fountain Life, why he is kind of on the mission of doing what he's doing, and what he hopes happens in the next three to five years. I know we'll all learn from it and enjoy it. Here's Bill Kapp. So um, let's just chat for, let's just chat. Um, You know, I think of you as someone who seems like they've had a lot of chapters in their lives so far. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you're an orthopedic surgeon, you're a father, you're all these things. If you were to say a couple of things that describe what you do, what are the words that you would use?
1: Uh, you probably, number one, I just try to make a difference, positive change. That's, that's been the goal. I, I tell my kids that all the time. I don't care what they do as long as they make a positive change. And I think ultimately the way I've found a, the best way for me to do that is actually by trying to find the newest and best technology that can improve healthcare and bring it you know, kicking and screaming, I say, into the future. Uh, You know, I certainly did that with my medical practices. I've done it with hospitals. And now the opportunity to do that with Fountain Life is a a huge opportunity, that we can actually bring technology that otherwise would sit on the shelf, would otherwise would sit in the lab, would otherwise be never utilized because of either insurance barriers or physician barriers to individuals so they can improve the overall uh, health span and lifespan. So if you,
0: to. so you mentioned your your medical practices, etc. So, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about the chapters of your life so far?
1: Sure. So um, I uh, started in uh, in undergraduate school uh, working on biochemistry uh, at Emory University, and uh, subsequently transferred to the University of Georgia, where I graduated, uh, and then. Wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. So I started into molecular research in genetics and immunology. And I uh, was working on a Ph.D. when I uh, was kind of asked by one of my superiors that, you know, you really should if you're interested in clinical medicine, you should go to medical school. So I actually applied to medical school and I finished my master's degree in immunogenetics and then went on to medical school uh, where I graduated uh, at the top of my class. And then from there, went to Baylor uh, in Houston. Where I finished, uh, I did my orthopedic training and my subspecialty training, uh, and then moved from there uh, to Missouri. And I was I had done a sports medicine training, so I was asked to work uh, with one of the local teams at a college in Southeast Missouri. So that's where I started my practice and uh, continued to bring innovation into that orthopedic practice. Over about ten years, uh, we took the orthopedic practice from I guess one clinic to about five clinics. And then we also added imaging centers, surgery centers, uh, always bringing in technology uh, twofold. One, uh, number one, how does the technology impact people's lives? And then number two, how do we take that technology and lower the cost of care? Because it was always uh, very apparent to me that the cost of healthcare was becoming egregious. And um, Nobody seemed to have a really simple solution for it uh, or a solution that they were willing to entertain. So we started into the hospital business. I got in the hospital business because I wanted to figure out a way to better take care of some of our critical care patients in our community. But also uh, people were having to travel three, two and three hours away to get the same type of care. So we started our first hospital, critical care hospital in, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which is where I was practicing, which was a regional referral center. Uh, and then from there, we, we expanded that to nine facilities around the country. And all the while, uh, being very interested, I mean, I was a pilot, I was in the Air Force, Uh, you know, uh, I was a flight surgeon in the Air Force, I've been pilot my entire life. So I've always been interested in this idea of bringing this nascent technology and how do we get technology forward. But finally, I came to the realization that no matter how much new technology I brought into healthcare, the biggest problem I had with healthcare, uh, the way it was currently constructed, is if you take a first principles approach toward healthcare, you realize that we are really only treating the symptoms after they occur. We're only treating the disease after it manifests itself. And the body's got an amazing capability and capacity to, to basically shield us from symptoms from latent disease that it's percolating inside of our bodies. And it's only when it gets to a certain threshold that we start to have physical symptoms and we start to manifest uh, symptoms of cardiac disease, diabetes, dementia i mean you name it the you know cancer we it's late stage is where we tend to find these things and finally after uh, you know i got exposed to exponential medicine uh through peter diamandis and daniel Kraft, uh and that was really a pivotal moment in my life where i finally realized that you know what there are a lot of people out there trying to f- solve the problem but even being at exponential medicine and hearing about all of these amazing new technologies that were coming to the fore. I still felt like the biggest problem was that we weren't using the tools that we had, you know, at a early enough stage to detect disease. So that's where Fountain Life, uh, or our first uh, Longevity Performance Center and Longevity Bioimaging, was formed. Uh, and then we subsequently merged that with Peter's uh, Stem Cell Company, uh, which was Fountain Therapeutics. We became Fountain Life. And so our, our main goal, as you know now, is actually to change healthcare from reactive to proactive, and to really so- move the paradigm.
0: So let me just unpack this a little bit, Bill, because um, the listeners, the v- vast majority of listeners to Positive Enterprise Value are seasoned, successful entrepreneurs, and probably some of them are nascent entrepreneurs who want to be entrepreneurs also. But what you just described was a very interesting combination and kind of a goulash between you as an entrepreneur and you originally as a caregiver, and then you as a CEO of other caregivers. And so help me understand that a little bit. Um, were you always an entrepreneur? Did you always sort of think like an entrepreneur? You think be, even uh, before you went to medical school?
1: Probably from my first uh, paper route and, uh, and you know, lawn mowing service uh, when I was, uh, you know, seven and eight years old. Uh, you know, were your parents that, entrepreneurs? Uh, uh, no, uh, my uh, family is, uh, my dad was an airline pilot and, uh, or is uh, was a, is a retired airline pilot. Uh, my grandfather was an, a German immigrant uh, and built a very successful business and, uh my brother's an entrepreneur, uh, but I think, you know, I I guess uh, my entrepreneurial uh, zeal came from the fact that when I looked at how healthcare was being delivered, uh, not only in medical practices, but also uh, in hospitals and surgery centers, it just seemed to me that uh, one of the problems was that physicians had been disassociated from the decision process and had been largely relocated to employees of those enterprises. And I think... um, that ultimately was the fundamental flaw of the health system. That you know, physicians, for whatever reason, there are a lot of you know historical reasons, did not take the mantle up of understanding that you you are responsible for your patient's health, but you should have very keen insight into their financial condition, and just so because. Do you, yourself,
0: do you think of yourself as a practitioner first, or as a leader first?
1: I always thought of myself as a practitioner trying to get care to the patient, but what it required was stepping into leadership roles where I could make the changes that were required and being in that position where I could make the decisions that I thought were in the best interest of the patient.
0: Are are you uh, a tricky guy to work with? Are you a difficult guy
1: to work with? Uh, (laughs) It it depends on who you talk to, I suspect. Uh, Look, I I tend to give people um, a lot of latitude. Uh, I hire people to a task, and then I expect uh, times and dates on milestones. And um, uh, what I find is I usually know within about, oh, probably sooner than 90 days, I always say it's 90 days. Uh, I probably know if somebody's up to the task or not. And and it's never personal with me. I, I look at the task of the organization. I look at, um, number one, I always feel like, number one, it's unfair to put, a per, per, to put an individual in a role that they're ill-suited for even if they think they're suited for it and you hire them to that position, it's not fair to the organization. And it's really not fair to the individual because they will probably find a better opportunity somewhere else. For so, sure. you know, obviously I've been through people. I mean, um, if you talk to people who work with me the people who work with me the longest, have stayed with me the longest. Uh, the people who they either stay with me a really long time or, or they're really short term.
0: So, so, so as you as you built the clinics, the orthopedic clinics, and then you morphed that into hospitals, did you have a uh, what we in business would call a capital gain event with the clinics?
1: Uh, I did not. I actually left my practice uh, to start the orthopedic uh, to start the hospitals, um, and um, you know they were all still operational. The way we had capitalized those, uh, you know, we got you got your initial investor capital out. Part of that with surgery centers is you worry about. You know, founding partners taking too much equity and then it damages the organization. So we had actually written in where, you know, look, we my my understanding of surgery centers and and the way we approached it was, look, this is a place that augments your income, but this isn't a place that creates your retirement. And so uh, you get your basis out when you leave uh, on your initial investment, and yet you get a really nice dividend structure while you're there. So it's a uh, for lack of a better term, it's a, it's a, a one-time annuity, but you don't get it really paid out on the end. So um, I think that that was, um, that was part of it. Uh, now I have converted my hospital company into an ESOP, which uh, I really looked to do because I thought our employees were very important to us. They've done a great job for me for 15 years. I looked at private equity exits. Uh, we had a few offers, but when I finally looked at the organizational structure of private equity uh, coming into the hospital space, and particularly some of the uh, strategic buyers that were out there, I don't think it would have fit our culture, and so yeah. uh, the employees were very excited about the ESOP. So, you know, we we we've been in the transition mode for the ESOP over the last couple of months now.
0: Wow, wow, that's so that's that's uh, complex. And so, is part of your vision of Fountain that uh, because again, in, in many of the people listening to this are building something by bringing value to a group of customers that they probably bring value in a specific niche better than anyone else. And as part of doing that, they are building the enterprise value of their organization. And what's in a lot of their minds is as they build their enterprise value and their legacy, it's with the mind that someday, someday is undefined, someday they might want to have a capital gain and get rewarded for that and maybe be able to take some chips off the table because most of them haven't been able to do that. That's
1: somewhat in your mind too? Yeah, it is. So, So you know, I, I actually approached uh, the hospital business twofold. I uh, own the real estate, and I also did the operational side. So we were able to affect a liquidity event on the real estate, uh, which uh, was helpful. Uh, and then it gave us some capacity to be able to uh, have a longer-term horizon on the ESOP transition. So I think that is very helpful. I, I um, So my role... Um, so I built landmark hospitals, like I built most of my enterprises outside of my medical practice, which I joined and then expanded uh, on my own um, on my own dime, so to speak. So I've never really had outside investors. I've never had a board. I've never, I mean, I've had board to run hospitals, but as far as the actual capital dollars and capital and, uh, that's required to get these up and off the ground, I actually did those uh, myself. Uh, we actually bootstrapped the hospitals one-to-one so it's the old-fashioned way but um, yep. you don't you tend not to make as many errors and you don't get out in front of your skis that often um Agreed. but um so we did that through the hospitals it, it took 15 years to build the hospital so uh you know i was ready to make a transition to fountain because i, I thought there was a real opportunity to change the trajectory of healthcare in the us so fountain's a, a new enterprise for me and that it is a totally different capital structure Uh, We have, uh, you know, investors who are amazing investors who are largely seed capital investors and, and, uh, you know, like-minded individuals. Uh, We don't have any, uh, we have very little, if any, venture capital money at this stage. Uh, But I think that, or or private equity money, most of our investors are passionate about the topic and passionate about the mission. And so I think that is, um, that's been great for us. Uh, and I think um, it's, a, a little, it's a new uh, learning skill for me, learning how to deal with uh, boards and people and scaling. But what I'm most excited about is the opportunity to scale an exponential organization, where I think we can actually grow significantly faster than we did in the hospital business.
0: So let me ask you, Bill, because what you just described in my experience of 40 years of working with entrepreneurs is really unusual. That is, many, I think I could accurately say most, uh, seasoned, successful entrepreneurs um, are rugged individuals who um, reluctantly build an organization. Uh, they're usually excellent practitioners at what they're doing. And for you, you have a certain pr- kind of practitioner um, think way you think about yourself, but others might be thinking about themselves in the aerospace business or in the medical device business or, or whatever, whatever. And um, they reluctantly take on outside capital or outside partners. You've made the, the switch where you did exist that way for, what, 25 years?
1: Uh, now, yes, I'd
0: say 20, yeah. 25 years. Yeah. And now you've made the switch where you actually um, moved uh, towards the next thing, right? You didn't just walk away from one thing. You moved uh, affirmatively towards the next thing. And uh, just in in the interest of full disclosure, people should know that I'm a a seed round investor in Fountain. And then you have a group of people who probably have um, some expectations of uh, communication, uh, input on business plan, um, expectations on value. I don't know what they are, but um, how have you been reflecting on that to yourself?
1: Uh, so, um, it, it's a little, bit of a learning curve, uh, you know, I'm used to being a board of one, which, yeah. now I have a lot of people helping me make decisions, but, uh, <laughs> to, to the, to the investors, uh, credit, uh, we have, I think, uh, a group of very patient investors. They understand this is a long-term horizon. They understand this is not, uh, this is not, you know, a hit it and get out you know, and, and, and make your multiple. Uh, these are people that are very passionate about the concept that we can actually change the trajectory of healthcare. And also I think, you know, all of our uh, investors are actually members of Fountain. You know, they are members, they are invested in their health, they're invested in longevity, they understand how important it is for us to get this right. Not only for their personal health, but it's really the long-term health of not only the United States, but the world at, at large. Uh, If you look at the major challenges in the world today, of which there are numerous, uh, one of the largest challenges is uh, the aging demographic and the aging population. And if you look around the Western world, all of the Western countries are experiencing a population decline, uh, some much more dramatically than others. But then you look toward Asia where the average age of a farmer in Japan is now close to 68 years old. And you look at the fact that they sell more baby diapers than or, uh, adult diapers and baby diapers in Japan. And now you look toward China where they're forecasting the population of China to be significantly reduced within the next 50 years due to the one child policy. And I think um, when you start to realize the cost of taking care of the elderly population, if we cannot find a way to make them robust up until the end of their life, whatever that day is, uh, and staying at home and staying vital, then uh, we will not be able to afford the current ecosystem that we have built inside the United States or or worldwide. We, we We will not have the luxury, nor do we now, of waiting until disease manifests to start to address the problem. We have to get people on a different trajectory entirely. And uh, while Fountain has some interesting initiatives around trying to prolong lifespan, the reality is nobody wants their lifespan prolonged if their health span doesn't match it. And so it's the one thing people cannot buy. You cannot buy your health. uh, You cannot buy years necessarily unless you take certain steps. And our goal is to give people the tools to identify disease early and to start that reversal process. And then as technology comes on and, you know, exponential technology being what it is and we just came back from a Peter's second A360, and, and, and I know you've been an attendee there. So you can see the, the beginnings of the technology where the possibility of extending lifespan is going to occur, but no one wants lifespan without quality.
0: So, okay. so um, of course, I'm nodding my head as you're speaking. I'm all about healthspan. In fact, uh, I don't know if you would agree with this, but just uh, my layman's uh, unscientific observation of where we are right now in 2021 is actually we probably have increased lifespan without affirmatively increasing healthspan very much. So we're actually in an uncomfortable place, I would say. Would you agree with
1: that? No, I would totally agree. I think um, certainly, you know, uh, 100 years ago, lifespan was far lower than it is today, largely due to poor sanitation Poor public health practices and infection, yeah. and uh, you know I, I always remind our teams we only widely deployed the first antibiotic <clears throat> to the general public uh, after World War II. Yeah, so we've seen amazing, amazing advances in in science, yeah. Yeah. but because of how the the education system was formed around medicine, um, you know, in order to learn about this very complex system we call the human body, we basically broke it into body parts. And everybody became a, became a specialist in their body part. Yeah, but very few people, if anyone, looked at the totality of the individual. Uh, and yet, that was relegated to the primary care doctor, who did not have, you know, in-depth training in every single body part. So it's it's hard to become, you know, you tend to become a jack of all trades and uh, yet a master of none. And ultimately, uh, the reality is, we were because we took a body part technology and, and we a uh, body part approach. We approach disease, or uh, or you know, we we approach manifestations of problems in each body part as a disease, and we attacked it as a disease. So we learn to treat the symptom, Uh, you know, we learn to treat the disease, Uh, but most of the time, our medications are about ninety percent symptom suppressive. Uh, They don't necessarily cure a disease. And so we, whether it be Alzheimer's or it be Parkinson's, these are symptoms suppressive. Uh, so getting down to the root cause analysis, I obviously is the point. So, so I totally concur. We have definitely increased lifespan. It's been fantastic in a lot of ways. It's a huge economic benefit to the country, whether people understand that fully or not. The dividend. Uh, worldwide to uh, every year of extra longevity is tremendous economically to the world. Um, and that's hard for people to grasp because people think, oh, everybody's just using more Medicare and they're using more government sponsored resources. But the reality is there's a spend that accompanies increasing longevity outside of healthcare that makes a huge economic impact. But I think that no one wants to be in a nursing home. No one wants to wind up in ten, spending the last 10 percent of their life in decline and we all have family members, uh, that have been down this road, uh, or we know of people who have family members that are in nursing homes, assisted living facilities, uh, memory care facilities. Sure. Uh, sure. and it, uh, if you haven't spent time in one, um, uh, there it's a, it, what well, it, it's a daunting task to take care of these patients and, uh, the staff does an amazing job, but it is, um, it's a very sobering experience if you haven't been in a recent assisted living or, or I would say skilled nursing particularly. So one of
0: the things that I love about uh, the Abundance 360 community, and that extends into the trip that you and I just took and the longevity trip, but it's about the whole community, is the realization that the diseases that you just spoke of, And you correct me if I don't have them in the right order, but I think the biggest killers in North America are cancer, cardio, pulmonary, metabolic, and neurological. And I think they're roughly in the right order. So
1: So if you look at the top 10 causes of death, that's exactly right. Uh, Now, I would put one in there that most people don't really like to talk about and physicians hate talking about. Uh, The third leading cause of death is actually hospital medical errors.
0: Okay, so beautiful. I, I should have had that. That's, that's really great. Um, and you described it perfectly earlier by saying that these were, but physicians were taught to basically go after these uh, vertical specialties. And, and I agree with you, it's largely to treat the symptoms. And one of the things I love about our dialogue has been that actually it's not that you get these diseases and then you age, that these are diseases of aging. That if you have enough miles on you, it's likely you're going to get one of these diseases. Can you say about
1: more about that? Yeah. So um, we know that um, you know aging, and and so this is one of the challenges even for people who are looking to reverse the aging process. How do you do a trial on reversing aging when it would take you 50 years to prove the trial? So people then have now started looking at what we call the diseases of aging, and these are largely diseases of inflammation. Uh, because what happens is you live a longer and longer period of time. Uh, there are more insults to your DNA, particularly your epigenome. There's more insults to your body, whether it be, you know, uh, ambient radiation or it be uh, inflammatory substances we take into our body. Uh, the reality is that over a period of time, it's this chronic level of inflammation that leads to multiple long term degenerative diseases. So we can take Alzheimer's, for instance. People start to uh, develop uh Alzheimer's uh, or they start to develop plaque uh, and beta amyloid and and beta amyloid plaque, I should say, and tangles in in neurofibrillary tangles in their brain as early as age 40. Whether you have a genetic disposition or not, almost everybody has it. And we know that there are people that lead a very healthy lifestyle, a normal body mass index, normal blood sugar, you know, uh, exercise every day, you know, family support, all of those things that keep you in a low inflammatory state. And no matter how much beta amyloid and neurofibrillary tangles they have in their brain at the autopsy, they never manifest any symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. But yet it's the inflammation, when if it allows to occur in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, that actually it, it's almost like lighting. Uh, Rudy Tanzi, a PhD out of Harvard, who talks about this frequently, it's like striking a match to burning tinder. And then the act, the brain becomes activated and it starts to, you know, to basically consume neural tissue, particularly in, in areas that can be uh, associated with Alzheimer's. So and that, but that extends to heart disease. It extends to osteoarthritis, it extends to uh, to, you know, hardening of the arteries. It extends to multiple aspects. So <clears throat> we always talk about, uh, you know, keeping a low inflammatory state is critical. You know, the poster child for this is actually Tom Brady right? I mean, he's like Mr. Non-inflammatory. And if you look at everything that he does inside of his body uh, within terms of exercise and nutrition and everything else that he does, he keeps extremely low inflammatory states. So that's a good starting point for all this. But it is clear that we have uh, divided up the body into body parts. And while the cardiologist is looking at your inflammatory conditions called atherosclerosis and hardening of the arteries in your heart and plaque, your orthopedic surgeons is looking at the exact same inflammatory conditions that's destroying your cartilage in your knee. Right. And yet there's no link between those two. And it's rare that I find a patient uh, when I was doing orthopedics that had significant osteoarthritis, that we were doing a hip or knee replacement, that did not have another disease of aging that was significant.
0: So, so, I, mean, uh, so I love the way you're describing that. And it's just, it's, it's so clear to me that uh, metaphorically, it's like other parts of our world. Um, so when I came back from the recent longevity trip with you and others, I was, as you know, my wife is a family practice doc and I was having dinner with her and one of her friends who is an sort of an internal medicine person. And he was asking us about this and I talked to him, I gave him about the last 30 seconds of what you and I just talked about. And he looked at me and just made a face, you know, like I was an infant and basically said, you know, I just don't believe in that crap. You know, really, Now, what comes next? Now, now what are you going to do, homeopathy? And so um, you're. it's pretty challenging in businesses, entrepreneur businesses, to take on the, um, the people in your industry who are already successful. In fact, I think a lot of entrepreneurs would say that the way that they've been able to make big changes in uh, industries which needed change is they came at it from the outside. But you, you've you got a large group of built-in physicians who I'm guessing probably hear what, what you and I are saying, and you and I are nodding our heads to each other, and they probably think we're out of our minds. How, how do we overcome that, or do we bother to overcome it?
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, obviously, this is uh, an area that we butt our heads against constantly. And I, I'm not so sure <clears throat> that it's a clear path toward changing minds, uh, is really maybe where our goals should be. I mean, ultimately, when I look at the healthcare system, we need to approach, approach the stakeholders in healthcare and the stakeholders in healthcare are businesses who are paying for healthcare and individuals who are paying for health insurance. And so the reality is that I, I I think having spoken to multiple physicians, um, The the problem with the technology that we're proposing for so much of what we do inside of Fountain Life and elsewhere is it is extremely disruptive to existing physician business models over time. And we're going to need to create a new business model to reward our doctors uh, that does not reward them for sick care, but it rewards them for prevention. And unfortunately, right now, 97% of our healthcare dollars spent on sick care and 3% spent on prevention, even though the ROI on prevention is so much higher than the ROI on sick care. But insurance companies make more money off the patients being sick than they do being well in terms of actual dollars spent in premium dollars. sicker you are, the higher your premiums tend to go. So there's more potential margin there. But I think ultimately what we're looking at is we're going to need to kind of reformat the educational system. And so we're excited about some conversations we're having uh, in uh, one location where we have a fountain life. Where there's a medical school there that is very interested in potentially changing the paradigm on how we educate doctors, and the reality is you spend your entire time in medical school learning pathophysiology, and by definition that is not physiology, that is pathological physiology, meaning yep. you know sickness, and we spend an inordinate amount of time looking how uh, learning how to take care of you after you break, after you've developed a disease process or you needed a, a disease or intervention. So we've tended to be, because of our invention in penicillin, we learned that there's a pill uh, for a problem. Uh, we tend to be a very uh, you know pharmaceutically driven society where you know we say, hey, here's your pill, here's your problem, here's my problem, here's a pill, or here's a procedure. Yeah. And So that's where the revenues uh, lied. So I think you know ultimately the goal will be <clears throat> to re-educate physicians so that they're more like an airline pilot. And you think about that. Your airline pilot trains every six months uh, in a simulator for every known emergency that could happen with the aircraft, which rarely, if ever, happens. So most of the time, he spends tweaking your flight plan, tweaking the flight plan, doing you know minor adjustments. And if we're going to build the new generation of healthcare and we're going to lower the cost and we're going to improve outcomes and quality, we need to be able to have our physicians of the future train for sick care, but yet rarely if ever have to, you know, employ those tools. The goal would be to ultimately that they could help guide you through a healthy future without necessarily having to wait to put a stint in you, put a total knee in you, put whatever, because once again, we've addressed the causes of aging and these aging diseases at such an early state that you never manifest the end, end stage portion of the disease. So when you speak to physicians about that, they really uh, look askance at you, number one. Uh, Secondly, they don't believe it because they can't believe the technologies here. And then if you actually engage them in a discussion about potential age reversal, then you lose them entirely. Yeah. Because that is not dogma and that is not taught. And part of the problem is our our medical uh, educational system has become extremely sclerotic outside of maybe a few major medical centers that are heavily influenced by technology. And so, for instance, we were in Boston recently this week in New York, and then certainly you have the, the equivalent, uh, you know, in Mayo Clinic and then potentially also out, you know, definitely out where Stanford exists. Uh, and the, the ecosystems around that generate physicians, in my mind, that tend to be far more inquisitive, far more data-centric. But um, what is the most amazing to me and what we're seeing right now, we're just seeing the early stages of it, and, and I have a daughter who's a general surgery resident, the existing group of millennial physicians in training today are not happy with the current status quo. They are not happy with putting their finger in the dike and continually trying to patch up for things that they feel like should have been addressed earlier. And so uh, this group, which is, by the way, they grew up with an iPhone in their hand. They grew up with an iPad. They grew up very data centric, unlike me. It was, we didn't have that uh, luxury of technology. So I think that they come at things with a very different mindset. And, you know, the common comments I hear from them are, we need to change the system. How do we change the system? And the, what we're gonna to try to do, hopefully with the medical school and with potentially training programs, is to create a lateral move for them to where when you finish medical school or residency training, yeah, you've got this option to go do sick care, but by the way, there's this whole other option where you can do preventive medicine using the latest technology and yet be rewarded for it using technology and platforms. Because ultimately, going to the primary care doctor's office, unless they're doing a procedure on you, is largely because the primary care doctor needs to be paid. And that's the venue that they're reimbursed the best in today. We just learned with COVID that we just treated millions of people through telemedicine. And we jump-started that entire process. So COVID will be... Yeah, uh, and, and COVID will be, you know, as as bad as it's been, it will, the amount of dollars that have been spent in R&D and development inside of healthcare during COVID will be the equivalent of the Manhattan Project for healthcare. We will not be able to forecast the innovations that will come out from COVID research and COVID funding, but it is clear we are going to change practice patterns because the millennial population, the post-millennials and the Gen Xers to a large degree as well, um, just remade four major industry groups in the United States, they just, they have remade retail. They have remade, uh, hospitality and lodging. They've remade transportation and they've remade entertainment and it's all on demand and they're coming after healthcare and they're coming after education and they so, don't understand it right now. And why? Those two, those, on demand.
0: And those are the two biggest industries in the world. Most people would say is healthcare and education. So exactly. So, uh, you know, when we think about the, the virus, um, but probably to an even greater extent, Bill, we think of the trauma that happened from the lockdown quarantine, which my friends would know I view as hopelessly unscientific, but there you are, that if you believe that that caused individuals and arg- families and organizations and communities some trauma, you know, I guess you can have post-traumatic stress. But you can also have tra- post-traumatic growth, and so right. I think in the entrepreneurial sector, we think we look at a lot of instances in the, this past six months where we see a lot of of post-traumatic growth. Now, you became CEO of Fountain. This is September. Was it six months ago? Uh, it was last October. Okay, a year uh, ago, eleven months ago. Okay, great. And so I expect that you're um, you were already a highly successful entrepreneur who has probably had his bag packed for lots of travel most of the time. But my experience has been that uh, 90% or more of the really seasoned successful entrepreneurs' stresses sort of come from psychological drains that they have. You know, the the thing that you sustain yourself with is if you are stressed and getting depleted, you do a certain amount of self-care. And when you start playing this deeper game, you realize actually radical self-care is kind of needed. I guess for some people that might mean meditation, for some people that might be breath work, for some people that might be cardio workouts. Um, What have you been doing in in your routine this year that in this past 12 months that you not only took on a new organization with new constituencies, but we also had the quarantine? What have you been doing that's been particularly energizing or interesting to you?
1: Right. So obviously, uh, you know, for a number of years, we've been involved with the, uh, Peter and his entire group uh, looking at different longevity measures. Um, but what I during uh, COVID, uh, you know, we did not change our travel plans. We continued to travel. I mean, several times I was the only person on the airplane, which is fine because it <laughs> works out well when you're dealing with quarantine. Uh, but we net, didn't stop. And part of the reason we didn't stop is because we need we kind of had a mission and we need to keep moving on our mission. But one of the things we did work very hard on is uh, boosting immune uh, immunity. And so, um, you know, very big fan of some of the peptide therapies out there that will boost immunity. And we've used those over time. But the number one uh, hack that we do, uh, that I personally do is I uh, I weight train. Being in the gym is critical. And the higher your muscle mass, the lower your inflammatory state, the better your neurocognition and the higher your immunity. And so that plus nutrition and then obviously trying to prioritize sleep. Those are the three things that we really did the most of during the quarantine. And now that we're kind of moving out of the quarantine, which has been great, um, you know, we're now in a position to even further accelerate that further. Uh, and to, you know, be able to kind of get back into the gym even on a more routine basis. So I would tell you that that's part of it. I think the other thing that keeps us motivated is the, the sense of mission. We feel like, uh, you know, I think um, the, the, everyone on our team is highly committed to this concept of changing healthcare from reactive to proactive. And um, I think it, it's a message that's easily resonant with most people, uh, even if it's not resonant to most physicians, <laughs> which hopefully it will change over time. I don't think physicians would disagree with you, but I think what we find is that this clinical latency gap, i.e., the time that technology is ready to the time a yeah. doctor will adopt it in their practice, is about 15 years. And uh, even the latest technology we have to look at plaque inside your arteries, um, we still have pushback, even though the American, uh, past president of the American College of Cardiology says it's the best screening test ever on the planet. And uh, he thinks we should stop doing all the other screening tests, and this is the only one we should do. Uh, even has pushback from his cardiologist on staff. Yeah. Why are you screening asymptomatic people? Right? I mean, this is the this is the concept. Why are you screening somebody who's asymptomatic? Why are you doing a whole body MRI? You're just going to find things. You know, why are you looking for problems? You know, I mean, because we're taught to wait until the problem manifests. Right. So it would be the same. So I'm um, once again I'll use an aircraft analogy. It's like if you said, we're not going to check the engine. Right. Because one day it'll fail, but we shouldn't look. We shouldn't look. Why look? Well, because who knows what we're going to find? Maybe we'll find out Who knows what we're going to find? And you know what? It'll probably, it, it might work fine for the next 20 years. So why should we look? Or 20 so that hours. that's the mentality. And I, and I think, but, you know, it's, look, I mean, as a, as a physician, if you think that your cardiology practice is about to be disrupted entirely by a technology that involves screening, um, and one, it's a little disingenuous if you're making all of your uh, income off of intervention. But what you really should think of is the fact that by screening more people, you're probably going to find more cases for intervention. So you should be a much more robust adopter of the technology, because the reality is there are going to be a certain number of that subset, and we've already found them, that medication is probably not going to reverse their situation. And they need an elective procedure to put a stint in, to open up the vessel, and, and that elective procedure, by the way, has a much higher success rate than when they have to take you to the emergency room with an acute heart attack. And now we have to do it, right? And plus, we can time it and we can plan it and and we can you know, handle the, the, the you know, the issues around it much easier. So I think it, it is just a mindset change and I'm hoping that physicians will do it. But uh I bear new illusions, so I think we start educating physicians, the ones that will listen, and then I think beyond that, we start to look toward medical students who are ready for the change. I think at this point.
0: So, Bill, many people listening to this podcast will think to themselves, "My God, look what this guy's done! He he was studying one kind of uh, science, he went to medical school, he started some clinics, he started some hospitals. Now he's the CEO of Fountain. He's gone from one success to another. Is there any?" sort of way that you can talk to us about is there any sort of maybe not a failure or maybe it is a failure or a disappointment where you stubbed your toe that comes to mind that was a great piece of learning for you?
1: Uh, we stub our toe all the time. <laughs> we just we just soldiered through. Uh, yeah we've had um, you know we in our history you know yeah we had a hospital that did not do well that we had to let go uh, for a lot of reasons that you know some some we learned hard lessons and that um, you know, we've been through the vagaries of government reimbursement where, you know, you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. A lot of our patients are Medicare patients. So, you know, when the government swings its mighty axe, sometimes you have to deal with that. But it, what we try to do is stay ahead of it. Um, I, you know, I, I'll go back to another aviation analogy because that's my, that's my forte. Uh, but I will tell you, um, we always tell the teams, number one, uh, in, in aviation, the three rules are number one, aviate, navigate, and communicate. So when something bad happens in the airplane... Don't stop flying the airplane. Okay. Something bad happens in your business. Don't stop running your business. Sitting in the corner and you know, and and perseverating about what you should or shouldn't have done, just keep moving forward. Okay. The more action that you put toward the problem and, and continue to execute, you know, and obviously if the plan's not working, you have to change the plan, but keep flying. Okay. Let the noise die down, but keep flying. And that's keeping the team focused. So the team doesn't panic. If the pilot panics, then the stewardesses panic, then the the passengers panic. So uh, a lot of that is, um, you know, making sure that you just number one, fly the airplane. But we've had, you know, we say we fail our way to success. I've not lost a business. uh, So it's not that type of failure. Uh, But we certainly have remade our businesses while we've moved from one, you know, business line to another. Uh, And we've continued to expand and I think, the one thing I never really wanted you know I always it's the Kodak moment right it's failing to appreciate technology that's going to disrupt you yeah. or failing to adopt technology that could uh, that otherwise will disrupt you and so, yeah. I think, so I, just all
0: the listeners I think what you're referring to is that Kodak actually developed the digital camera refused to uh, go with it and then was basically put out of business by a digital camera
1: exactly and so so you know it's interesting you know Sears is now uh, I think they closed their last store in Chicago. Uh, and recently, and uh, it was a, if you think about it, historically, Sears was the first online retailer. Yeah. Right. But yet failure to see where technology was moving led them to believe that their model would never change. And yet. So, so if you had some smart, um, let's
0: see, what could I say? Uh, college student who was listening to this podcast and wants to be an entrepreneur would you give, what, what sort of paragraph worth of advice would you give them?
1: Yeah, so I think number one, uh, you know, so one of the challenges I always heard, and I, always, I never really understood it for the longest time, is, you know, follow your passion. Well, you know, okay, what does that mean? You know, my passion is, you know, I like to watch pro football games on Sunday afternoon. That's like my passion, right? But I think, um, so the question is, what is your passion? And, and how do you teach someone to find their passion. And and I think one of the best things I ever heard from somebody was, look, it is what you will read when you don't have to do your job. What are you interested in when you don't have to do your job? What is it that captivates you beyond anything else? And then find a way uh, to, uh, number one, look at that as a way to deliver that, whatever your passion is, find a better way to do it, a more efficient way to do it that is going to help the greatest number of people. And I think the key here is to have that mission of of wanting to make a positive change. You know, just anybody, everyone I've ever met who's been financially successful um, has had, it was not their primary reason to start a business. Right. They had a primary reason to make a difference, to make something easier, or, or they just had an absolute fascination with a piece of technology. Or, or a type of research, and yet they rarely would see the opportunities, you know, that would afford them down the road, but yet other individuals who are constantly looking, venture capitalists, private equity, will see that technology and help them scale it to a larger level. Uh, so I think that's number one, is finding out what is it that you want to make a difference in, uh, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, the, the, money's, you know, the money, but and, and financial success is a byproduct of your effort, uh, largely, but sometimes it it's not financial. You know, I think some of the greatest successes we've seen over the years are satisfied patients, you know, satisfied family members. Uh, the, the thing that gives us the most, uh, pleasure at Fountain is when we detect a disease that everybody else has missed, even at some of the major centers, they may have been at Mayo or Cleveland clinic or whatever. And all of a sudden we find something and they're like, wow. I've been going there for years and they never found that, you know. So so to us, that gives people empowerment. And ultimately, if you're going to become CEO of your own healthcare, which I think will come. I think doctors have a huge role to play because it's still a complicated field. But ultimately, you're going to get more information on your phone than any doctor will ever have about you. And you're going to have your access to your own medical record that is translated to you in, in layman's terms by the A.I., so that you'll know on a day-to-day basis what you need to do to optimize your health. And it won't be a question of waiting and going to the doctor's office every six months or once a year for a physical exam or a checkup. You'll get these measures coming to you often and frequently, uh, whether they be with you know wearable devices or laboratory or lab on a chip, we're gonna see all this within the next few years. And it's gonna make a radical change in how people look at their health.
0: So um, how often these days are you – how many hours a year do you get a chance to fly as pilot in command?
1: Uh, I fly as often as I can. I've been without an airplane for about six months, uh, but that's getting ready to change here uh, within the next month, so that's good. <laughs> I'll, I'll, we have to get back up in the speed. I, I'm not a huge – I'm not a super high-time pilot. I've got all about 3,000 hours, and so I've been Great. flying for a number of years. But uh, I find it helps. Uh, number one, it uh, gets me uh, – a little out of the day-to-day thinking about what I'm doing because I can focus on something else, but then more importantly, uh, being able to be a lot more efficient with my time and travel.
0: So here's the last question. So here you are a guy who uh, has had many chapter changes in your career. It strikes me that they're quite intentional. Uh, each kind, time you made a change, it looked to me like you were making a change for a reason. So it's uh, September 28th, 2021. If we were going to have a conversation like this in 2026, five years from now, um, and you said to me, Pete, wow, remember that day we had that conversation back in 2021? I say, yeah. And you say, just I've had the most personal and professional success ever in my life since then. Now we're in 2026 looking back. What happened?
1: Uh, we changed the discussion around healthcare we changed healthcare from really uh, seriously being reactive to being totally proactive in our healthcare. Uh, and we developed, so, so you know, I'll use a Tesla analogy uh, El- because Elon Musk always said, you know, he didn't have to make every electric car. He just needed to start the ripple where everybody will make an electric car. And so if you ask Elon when he started Tesla 20 years ago, a little less than 20 years ago, he would probably tell you today, when Ford, uh, so today you know, Ford announces they're building two eleven billion dollar electric manufacturing uh, facilities and one in Kentucky, one in Tennessee. Yeah, that's the ripple. So, if I said what's the success, it's not that Fountain has to treat every patient, it's that we change the discussion from sick care to well care and we change it from reactive to proactive and we start to look at the plan and we start to lower the cost of health care which right now is bankrupt. It's the number one cause of uh, bankruptcy in the United States is medical medical bills. And that's, to me, unacceptable. So the only way to do it is to, to attack it from a true cause, and that's the plan. So that would, be my, that would be my hope, that we would change it strictly and, and be the ripple in the pond. We'll be the stone in the pond that creates the ripples. And uh, and if everybody else can figure it out and they adopt the plan, then that's that's a win as far as I'm concerned.
0: Bill, I love what you're doing. As you know, we're avid supporters in every way, including being uh, invested uh, both physically and psychologically and financially. So thank you for being a guest on Positive Enterprise Value. This has been great.
1: I really appreciate it, Pete. Thanks a lot and say hi to Crane for me. Okay, I will. All right, bye-bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet, and it it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm, Bigelow, to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur-owner-managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com.